so you can't like it. So how do you say it? You can pre-order it in the hopes that it might not be bad. That's a fair thing to say. <laughs> oh, just pre-order it on faith, yeah, right? Um, so what? Well, I mean, I'm not in charge of such matters. <laughs> I wrote it. I finished it about. Um, well, th- you don't care. But maybe you do care. When did I finish this book? Um, in December-ish? So I guess nine or ten months. I don't know. I don't, I don't print things. Um, I have the Word document. Oh, it's I can't do that. I can't do that. <laughs> so what I'm going to do today is something a little bit different than if you were here yesterday. If you're a, a double attendee, I gave something along the lines of kind of the beginnings of a theology of policing. One of the things that I've noticed when I have begun to speak about justice or social justice in the public square, people have this tendency to take their definition of social justice and attribute it to me and then critique their constructed definition of social justice. It's kind of odd, right? Like, if you talk about justice, you mean these 15 things that go, actually, no, I don't. And so I thought to myself, wouldn't it be good to try to think through what the Bible has to say about justice. And if I don't meander too long, I will go from a discussion of justice to how that relates to sin and structural injustice. So we're heading towards systemic injustice, but we got to start with justice. Is that okay? That what y'all are here for? And so this might be a little bit nerdy and boring, and it may be begging the question. You may know all of this stuff, but it's entertaining to me, and I have the microphone, okay? So this is when I I get to pull out my full Bible stuff. So any discussion of justice for the Christian starts with God. And the scriptures depict God as a God of justice. As a matter of fact, the psalmist says God is the king who loves justice and establishes equity. That's Psalm 99 for us. You can hear a lot of Bible quoting going on now. Psalm 97 says that righteousness and justice are the foundation of his throne. So God's rule on earth is rooted in justice and righteousness. What does it mean then to say that God loves justice? You might venture to say that God loves justice is straightforward, that God loves fairness or right dealing. Deuteronomy says You should not be partial in judging. You should hear out the small and the great alike. You should not be intimidated by anyone, for judgment is God. Judgment belongs to God. So this is Deuteronomy 1.17. So, to say that God loves justice means to say that God loves to see people treated fairly, and he intervenes when people are not treated fairly. There's a danger here in oversimplicity because the moment that we say that God is just, we have to qualify or expand that conversation because we don't want God's strict justice, right? I have kids, I have kids. Anyone here, has anyone else reproduced before? Okay, okay. I have four of them. Well, my wife had them, I was just kind of there. Anyways, (laughs) need to give her credit for the birthing bits, okay. But my kids have a very like strict understanding of justice 
when it comes to a promise that I made. You said we can go to get some ice cream, and you, 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 you are bound by this word. There is no change. I demand my ice cream now. And I say to them, okay, we're going to say that our rules are immutable. But that means if you agree to this, you go to bed exactly at your bedtime, right? <laughs> There's no 15 more minutes, right? If, we, if we're going to implement the law, let's implement it all of the time. I said, no, 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 no. When it benefits me, I want to bend the law, right? And when it helps me, I want a strict application of the law. So in reality, we don't actually want God to be strictly just. We don't want God to give us what we deserve. We want his mercy and his grace. The good news then, even though we've spoken about God as a God of justice, is that God is not always strictly just towards us. He's often gracious. And this is clear from the beginning. When God is gracious towards Adam and Eve, allowing the human story to go forward despite their sin. So the garden story is not strict justice. God's grace intervenes again in the wilderness, where despite Israel's idolatry, God reveals himself as the Lord, the Lord, gracious and compassionate. It's Exodus 34, 6. The Bible then is full of passages in which God's graciousness forestalls strict justice. One of, our, our, one of the weird things about um, some Christian depictions of the Old Testament is that we forget what the Old Testament actually says. Because we say, oh, the Old Testament was about law and the New Testament was about grace. And I say Psalm 51, right? <laughs> where, where God, where David says, thank you, God, but not give me what I deserve. And so God's graciousness is not something that's revealed only in the New Testament, but the Old Testament is full of examples of God's grace. David then is very happy in this context when God does not give him exactly what he deserves. So there's an apparent tension then in the Bible between God's strict justice, giving people what they deserve and treating people fairly, and his gracious desire to save. And most of Israel's history involves God not enacting the strict terms of the covenant. So you, you, in, in the story of Deuteronomy, God comes into, God brings people to the edge of the promised land and says, if you do well, it goes well with you. If you do poorly, I'm going to judge you. But instead of judging them when they do things poorly, he sends prophet after prophet for thousands of years saying, please don't do this. We're going to get to this later then. If God's way of being is not always the enactment of strict justice, then like this, this excessive understanding of law and order and not giving space for redemption is a little interesting for us as Christians. But that's a question for later on. So, instead of enacting the strict terms of the covenant, God sends prophets to warn Israel that they do not want to experience God's justice in the form of punishing their covenant violations. And it's noteworthy, if you actually want to go back and read the Old Testament with this in mind, that when the prophets sent, when God sent the prophets to warn Israel about their impending judgment, when God says you're going to be in trouble, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, all of these prophets often highlight societal injustice towards the poor. In other words, what is something that could get Israel in trouble? 
Woe to you who grind the poor and the needy. So this apparent tension then between God's justice and his graciousness is ultimately resolved on the cross of Christ, where the extent of God's justice and graciousness and covenant faithfulness are completely revealed. This is Romans 3, 21 to 26. This is why in Romans, God is described as both as just. God is just in keeping the terms of the covenant by punishing sin in the form of allowing Jesus to take that punishment and the justifier. He's the one who brings forgiveness. So in Jesus, you find God's justice and his desire to save reconciled on the cross. So when the Bible then speaks about God as the God of justice, it does mean that we believe in a God who is an advocate for fair dealing. But it also means that when the people are in need, he is the one who comes in and rescues. Now, when the Bible speaks about the God as the God of justice, this justice, interestingly enough, is often co-located with a display of what's concerned for the needy. God is repeatedly described as the champion of the poor. Psalm 12, 5, Psalm 14, 6, Psalm 40, 17. The poor can look to God when society has turned its back on them. Now, this is the question. Have you ever wondered why this is the case? This might seem like a weird question. Why do psalms exist? Especially the psalms of lament. Do you all, when do you all go and complain to God? When all of the normal avenues of justice have been revealed, have been used and it's, and, and it's gone, there's no one else to turn to, you say, well, maybe God can help me. So in other words, the psalmist has already gone to court. He's already pursued all of the means in society to get the justice that he deserves, and society has turned his back upon them. And the psalmist can only say, there's nobody left in society who can help me. Maybe God can. And he, he repeatedly says, because the poor and needy cry out, and there is no one to say to them, I myself will rise up and do it. So I want you to understand what's going on there, and the, implicit, the implicit idea that someone who is mistreated did not receive justice through the normal means. Society turns their back upon them. And God says, the stepped-on peoples of the world, these are the people I care about. One of the things that, that, I, that I have read a lot is about how we shouldn't divide people into categories like oppressed and oppressed. You ever heard this language before? Isn't it shocking that the Bible does this exact thing? Like there's a word oppressed in the Bible, right? So what do you think a, an oppressed person is oppressed by? Oppressors, right? It's not, this, this, this isn't fancy. Just, you don't have to know German, Hebrew, Latin, or Greek. It's like this is in, in, in the English. The, the reason that God is the defender of orphans and widows, because orphan and widows has the least amount of societal resources to turn to in times of need. And God is repeatedly depicted as the champion of these people. In other words, concern for injustice towards the poor is a manifestation of God's justice. You can't separate those things. God isn't, in other words, the Bible doesn't just say treat everyone fairly. The Bible says the people who are most likely to be treated unfairly 
are the poor and the needy. And so God has to side with them in order for justice to prevail. So this, what we're saying here then is that justice in the Bible is not simply about fair dealing. But God's desire to see the oppressed receive justice. And this same concern is seen in the prophets who contrast justice with oppression. Sorry about that. Hopefully, hopefully it's not one of my kids' schools. Anyways, <laughs> that, that, that was a school number. Let's just hope for the best there. Okay. There we go. Look at that. Yeah. School number. My wife is off work today, so she'll, she'll take care of it. They'll be fine. All right. But maybe they won't. We'll find out at the end of this talk. All right. When the Bible speaks about God, where was I? No, here it goes. The same concern. So this is funny because um, you may not, may, most of you won't know this, but my wife is a reservist in the military, and she was called to active duty. And when she was called to active duty, this is about a year and a half ago, I was the only parent who was around, so I just never turned my phone off in case they called. And so I just got in the habit. I used to be much better at turning my phone off, but now I'm, I'm in the habit of like, they might need me, but I think they can survive now. Anyways. The poor, sorry, the same concern can be seen in the prophecy, contrast justice with the oppression of the poor. So justice is, 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 is seen when the poor receive justice. Further, when the prophecies speak about the Messiah, and you can see this every year um, when, you, when you read the stories around Christmas, the coming king will be known for his concern for justice. What's it going to look when the Messiah comes? We'll finally receive justice. Now, this same concern, we talked about what God is like. God is the God of justice. He cares about when the poor and the needy are oppressed. What about when it relates to human-to-human interactions? Do we understand what God says about what he does? How are we supposed to interact as humans? You see the same thing in God's discussions of how the Israelites are supposed to interact. Now, interestingly enough, there is a passage in Leviticus 19.5. I think it's one of the only ones, so I'm going to highlight it in case someone asks me this during the Q&A we have time. God says, Israel, be fair to the rich and the poor alike, and don't favor the poor in your judgments. In other words, there, I think there's one, maybe there's two, in the Bible where it says, be careful not to side with the poor against the rich just because they're poor. But if you want to stack those verses up, you get like one or two of those, and you get literally hundreds of the other one, where the multitude of biblical texts focus on the protection of the poor from the rich. For example, when the Moses' legislation warns of his conduct, he calls upon the people not to take bribes against the poor in the lawsuit. That's Deuteronomy 6, 19 and 20, 1 Samuel 8. Three. You know, so in other words, he's saying, hey, when you have a court case, don't take a bribe. Now, what does this actually mean? This means that Moses understood that money can tip the scales of justice. The people with financial resources can work the law in a way that the needy cannot do. So he says, you know what you need to understand? You need to understand that money corrupts the, legis- the, the legal process. Is this accurate to say? Can the rich get a different form ex- experience of law than the poor? 
Another thing that's really interesting is that when God warns Israel of impending judgment, um, like what's going to get the people in trouble? This is Isaiah 5, 5 to 8, um, Isaiah 11, Isaiah 5, 5 to 8, 11, 23, Isaiah 58, Jeremiah 116. There are three things that can get you in trouble. And I've always noticed, here's a good way. Is anyone here a pastor? Y'all are pastors? You can raise your hand so you kind of do churchy stuff. Okay. Here's the thing. There are three things in Isaiah that he returns to over and over again that gets people in trouble. And this is a good church audit. I would say this. There's three sins. One, personal immorality. Like he says, woe to you who get up early in the morning and chase drink and you kind of, like, woe to you immoral people, personally immoral. That's sin one he talks about. The second sin that Isaiah talks about over and over again is idolatry. Woe to you who, who bow down to the moon god and gets him in trouble. The third one is, what do you mean grinding the faces of the poor? He says to you, woe to you who had house to house and field to field until there's no room left in the people in the land. This might actually work for Malibu, right? <laughs> in other words, people brought up all the land, the property taxes went up really high, nobody can afford to live there anymore, right? In other words, Isaiah has three sins, structural injustice through the oppression of the poor, personal immorality, and idolatry. And I notice that churches tend to specialize in one or two of these sins, but not all three. So in some churches, you can say all that you want about holiness, and everyone's going to go, amen, brother. We need to pull ourselves together, and you won't get any emails or sister. And you can say, no, we need to be faithful to God. Amen, sister, we believe it. We need to be faithful to God. And what about these, whoa, structural sin, is that wokeness? And it's all in the same prophet. Isaiah says the same God who cares about how we live our lives morally, and he wants us to worship him faithfully, cares about how society treats their neighbors. One of the um, things that people often talk about is, well, that's true, Dr. McCauley, but this is Israel, and these are God's covenant people, but this has nothing to do with something like a secular government. And I would say to them, that's really, really interesting. You should turn to Daniel chapter 4. You all know the story of Daniel chapter 4? Maybe you do, maybe you don't. I don't know how much Bible y'all do in the church. Y'all do a lot of Bible in the Church of Christ? Okay. <laughs> I don't know if I can just refer to passages and you'll know what they are. But that's the story of Nebuchadnezzar. You've heard of Nebuchadnezzar? Okay, Nebuchadnezzar gets himself in trouble. Anyone? Why does Nebuchadnezzar get, why is he in trouble? Why does he, why does he lose his kingdom? What? Pride. That's what I was told my entire life. It is true. He gets me up before pride. Can we turn, to, can we turn in our Bibles? I love it. That's true, by the way. Like, the pride is, is true, but there's another one. Turn to Daniel chapter 4. This is one of those things that's like hiding in like plain sight. Is anyone there? Is anyone a good Bible flipper? Anyone? Daniel chapter 4? Who, anyone? Anyone has it? Can you read verse 27? 27, yes. I'm sorry, what did you say? What's the last part? Oh, so wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. Nebuchadnezzar was in trouble for two reasons, not one. He said, you are in trouble because you're prideful and you oppress the poor. And he says, God might be merciful to you, even at this last moment, if you break off your sin by stopping your oppression of the poor. 
And Nebuchadnezzar is not in the covenant with Israel, is he? He's not a covenant king, right? He's a pagan king. So isn't it interesting that God even wants a pagan nation to treat the poor with justice? So no matter who you are, if you are a ruler or a government, God expects you to treat the poor fairly. You actually see the same thing in the prophets, where they're condemning foreign nations for their injustice. So I want to contend that biblical justice has a consistent focus on how we treat the poor and our failure to treat the poor, whether or not we're inside the covenant or outside the covenant, whether it's Israel or Babylon. If you mistreat the poor, you're liable to God's judgment. And we see the same concern for the poor in the New Testament, where Jesus begins his ministry by quoting the Isaiahic passages that speak about the good news being preached to the poor and the establishment of justice. It's almost like Jesus couldn't make this any clearer. So in other words, if you have the entirety of the Old Testament as your playground, and you're saying, well, what stream of the Old Testament am I going to pick up to help you understand my ministry? And Jesus says it's precisely those passages in the prophets that speak about fidelity to God, concern for personal morality, and justice towards the poor. As a matter of fact, if you read the Sermon on the Mount, you see all of those concerns. Jesus' ministry is a picking up of the prophetic tradition to combine into three what we separate. Faithfulness to God, his Father, a concern for holiness, and a concern for how we treat the poor. They used to call Isaiah the fifth gospel in the early church precisely because it's one of the most quoted parts of the Old Testament and the New Testament. As a matter of fact, the ones that are most quoted in the New Testament are Isaiah, well, amongst the ones that are most quoted are Isaiah and the Psalms. Particularly those Psalms in Isaiah that deal with issues of injustice and oppression. Furthermore, we cannot take seriously the idea that Jesus preached the kingdom of God without asking about the way in which that kingdom is depicted in the Old Testament. If Jesus says the kingdom of God has come amongst you, and we say God's kingdom is rooted in justice and righteousness, then we're beginning to see how justice is the central aspect of Jesus' own understanding and ministry. Now, I want to say one thing to clear up um, something that can get misunderstood. is that Jesus respected the poor enough to give them moral agency. In other words, the poor in Jesus' ministry were not simply objects of compassion. They were called to participate in God's coming kingdom. In other words, God, Jesus didn't say, I'm sorry that you're poor. Here is some food. He actually says, I want you to come into my kingdom and live an ethical life indicative of that kingdom. So he respected the poor enough not to simply see them as object lessons, but as persons, even in their poverty, capable of making moral decisions. In other words, Jesus' ministry was not limited to the healing of the sick and the performing of miracles. All of the sick weren't healed, but and Christians believe that our ultimate healing is eschatological, the resurrection of the dead. But Jesus' ministry towards the suffering was meant to articulate the kind of kingdom that Jesus was going to establish when he comes. In other words, Christians don't believe that we can, we can solve every problem, but that's not the point. When we engage in works of justice and compassion, we're saying... This is the kind of kingdom that God's going to bring about in his fullness when he comes. And when we don't, 
we preach and we embody a distorted concept of God's kingdom. As a matter of fact, according to Paul, and I, I teach at um, a Christian college. I think Pepperdine's Christian too, right? You guys got it. It's the same thing, right? And so I remember they had these, um, what do you want to call them, uh, consultants come. And the consultants teach you how to brand your institution. And so they gave you these fancy terms and all of this stuff about making, why you should come here. I'm assuming at Paradigm and they say, love Jesus and love the beach. I don't know what you all do here. <laughs> right? I don't know. But the, the consultants came to me and I made a suggestion that like um, no one is taken up. But I, I sell this to every Christian school that I go to. Maybe one of you um, will do it. It's called Pepperdine. We're not that good. Now, <laughs> let me explain to you why. Let me explain to you why. Because in 1 Corinthians verse, um, chapter 1, verses 26 to 31, Paul actually says this exact thing to the church in Corinth. He goes, not many of you are wise. Not many of you are influential. Not many of you are, like, basically he said, y'all were the scrubs. Right? He says it. And he says, but God chose the weak things of the world to shame the wise and the strong and the he should God chose those who are not to bring to nothing those who think that they are. In other words, God is glorified precisely through our inadequacy. He said God wanted poor people on his team to show that what the society values and places honor in is not what I value and place honor in because my kingdom is different. So I said, come to Wheaton. We are right. I mean, but no one wants to do that, right? We want to say, no, no, no. The same thing that everybody else's value about money, resources, intellectual ability, you can have that and Jesus, which I'm saying you can. But that's not, that's not how God, in other words, God doesn't say, he needs your talent to accomplish his purposes. He says, no matter who you are, you're useful to me. I really do wish that our Christian schools would say that. No matter who you are, you're useful to God. Come to us. Anyways, but, but I don't think that would work. Maybe that's why I'm not a marketer. Anyways, so the good news then is not only to the poor that God's going to give them bread, but the king of the universe invites them into his kingdom and his family through grace, and they're useful to God. In a society that only judges people by their accomplishments and their abilities, God says, no matter who you are, you're useful to me. He sees the poor as persons. And that seeing the poor as persons comes into the early church. So then, we might be tempted to speak about, here it goes, this is my definition. Biblical justice as the fair treatment of others reflects God's own character with a particular concern for the ways in which individuals and societies often deny fair treatment and exploit the poor and the weak. And there seems to be an assumption that this exploitation will be, remain a reality like all other sins until the Lord's return. In other words, the Bible doesn't seem to suggest that, structure, that, that injustice is going to end before Jesus comes back. And some people say, well, why do you keep talking about it? I say, well, the Bible also seems to suggest you will continue to lie until like, Jesus comes back. But no one says, I gave the lying sermon in like 2018, and I don't need to do it anymore. Like, no, you return to, like, or, or marriages or families. In other words, sins, because we're broken, recur. 
and as a part of normal Christian preaching and discipleship, did not preach about only once in time of crises, right? But it's a consistent pattern of discipleship. And I don't know how injustice became the crisis sin. In other words, it's the only sin, it's the sin that's only addressed in times of national crises where it's unavoidable. But it should be a regular part of Christian preaching and, 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 and teaching. No one ever says that, I, sorry, this, I'll, I'll stop. I preached about tithing once, and my congregation got it. None, I'm assuming, I don't know, y'all tithe here too? I'm assuming the stewardship sermon series comes around with a startling regularity, right? <laughs> now, sin and justice, I don't have a lot of time. I, I've spoken too long. Sin and justice are related doctrines. Therefore, we can't speak about justice um, without talking about sin. So what is sin and who can engage in it? This might seem like it would be a strange question. But the scriptures speak about sin coming into the world as a result of the fall. And Adam and Eve's sin, what their sin was, as a, as a, was at bottom a desire to be like God and to make their own choices independent of him. And if Paul is to be believed, that this rebellion against God leads straight to idolatry, right? Sin leads to idolatry, according to Paul. And idolatry is the human tendency to put things in place of God. That's basically what racism is. It's a form of idolatry, where you value something that God doesn't value, and you give it a ranking and a place in society that God doesn't give it. But there's another important aspect about sin we don't need to miss here that occurs in the opening portions of Genesis. When Cain is plotting to murder his brother, God comes to him and gives him a, a dire warning. Why are you angry? And why is your countenance fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? If you do not do well, sin is lurking at the door. It's desirous for you, but you must master it. Sin, then, in the biblical account, is something that exists within us, right? We have sin within us. But it's also a power that wants to master us. It's just that no one doubts, like, this idea that as a result of the fall, we can harm one another. I want to talk about what it might mean for not individuals to sin against individuals, but societies to sin against individuals. Is there, in, in other words, in the Bible, what we might call systemic or structural sin? Is that a biblical idea? Can a society sin against an individual? And here we can return back to what we've already said. Exodus 23, 6 to 8. Do not pervert the justice due to the poor in their lawsuits. Keep far from a false charge. Do not kill the innocent and those in the right. For I will not acquit the guilty. You should take no bribe. Looking for this. For a bribe blinds the officials and subverts the causes of those who are right. This is it. In the Mosaic legislation, he says that money can cause you to sin against individuals and law courts. Do you know that um, it's still the case that African Americans are, by every statistic, overcharged for the exact same crime as other people in society? It's just, it's, this is not disputable. Like the, the criminal justice department will tell you. If, and by the way, murder is bad. We got that on the scene. But an African American who commits a murder is more likely to get a death penalty than anyone else would. 
after every other um, norm has been established. In other words, we see currently in our society a structural injustice vis-a-vis law. You know, this is another stat, and I, I, there's so many I could do. But here's the one that I found that was most interesting. Did you know that African Americans are more likely to be pulled over by the police than other ethnic groups? But that actually changed. They did a study. Do you know when it changes? It changes when the sun goes down and the, and the police officer can't see inside the car and it kind of balances out. Just, you can look at the studies. So we understand that like, what the Bible says about the possibility of structural injustice actually happens in our society. Now, the warning against taking bribes. Now, we don't need to belabor this point too much, but Isaiah 58 convicted the nation who created a system of labor that exploded the you know, why do you get up in the morning to fast and pray, and then in the afternoon you go and exploit your workers? Isaiah 58 says it, like, you are doing these things you shouldn't be doing. I don't want to say too much, but the prophets, we don't really think about this because the Bible for us is um, kind of Bible world. But when the prophets go to the king, like when Nathan goes to David, the king is the government, right? There isn't a, there, there's not a Congress for him to go to. So if there's a problem going on in society, you went straight to the king. So every single example of a prophet going to a king is God's representative going to the government to tell the government about the things that they're doing incorrectly. And oftentimes when the prophets go to the king, they get in trouble. Remember when, they, when he takes um, the vineyard? Right? The king wanted something. He's the government. And there's a little guy there who has a little piece of land, and they wouldn't give it to him. You see, you see what I mean? That's, that is seen as, we think of it as, as, a, as a sin in, in some kind of abstract way. This is the government taking someone's land simply because they want it. This is happening today in our government, we see it as, as, as a sin. So how might we think biblically, then, about the existence of something like a structural sin? One way of doing it, is to think about what Paul says about spiritual powers. Paul speaks of the non-Christian world as the kingdom of darkness. That's Colossians 1.13. He also talks about the principalities of powers that rules the air in Ephesians. So he thinks that the world is dominated by these spiritual powers that then have an influence on us in society. Now, it seems to be like kind of straightforward to say this. The powers that influence the non-believing world would create inequalities rooted in greed, exploitation, and racism. So you, either, you, you kind of have one or two problems. Either you have a, an over-realized eschatology, where we've already defeated all of the spiritual powers, or we believe what the Bible says about the kingdom of darkness, and the kingdom of darkness actually might be interested in storing up discord and division and misogyny. That's one way in, right? Another way is to link two things, sin and power. What do I mean by this? Well, you have an individual person who is greedy, and you can be as greedy as you want when you're broke and you have no power. You can't really influence anybody with your greed except for the people around you. What happens if you're greedy and you get into government? Then your greed you can use to create laws and structures that benefit you to the expense of other people. So one of the things they talk about is something like the EpiPen. You know about this? And like the shockingly high cost. You see what happens? So why does that occur? Because somebody in power used their 
power to increase their wealth at the expense of the poor. So any place where you have a powerful person who's also a sinner, they may use that power to allow them to maximize their sin. So we're stuck with the question, is it possible that there are powerful, sinful people in society? And if there are powerful, sinful people in society, then it's probably the case that they're using their power to maximize their sin at the expense of the populace. So if you have a theology of sin and power together, then you have how we ended up with structural injustice. The interesting thing about this, though, is that once a structural advantage is put in place, it doesn't require malice for it to continue. It creates its own energy and perpetuates itself. And so is it possible that we've had throughout American history a lot of sinful, powerful people who created patterns and habits in our culture to disadvantage certain people? Well then, systemic injustice, structural racism, is thoroughly, utterly, and completely biblical. As a matter of fact, we would be shocked if we did not find it. It would be a unique co-location of a long period of righteous rulers who never put any sinful structures into place, which I don't think anybody was going to claim, right? Because we, we flip parties every couple of years, and so the sin is spread around. <laughs> right. I mean, I'm sorry. It's funny. I was thinking about how many um, most important elections in my lifetime I've had. <laughs> and there's an endless number of them, and I don't even know if they, they've all gone the right way, supposedly. Anyways, here, here, I think um, the baptismal service in my tradition is um, maybe instructive in getting at what I talk about. I don't know if y'all do this in your tradition when we baptize people. We call this a threefold renunciation, the world, the flesh, and the devil. Have you heard about this before? That's okay if you haven't. When you're baptized, we say, do you renounce the devil and all spiritual forces that rebel against God? And the person getting baptized has to say, I renounce them. And then it says, do you renounce the empty promises and deadly deceits of the world that corrupt and destroy the people of God? And you have to say, I renounce them. And then the third one, do you reject the simple desires of the flesh? And you have to say, I renounce them. It's really interesting. It says, why do people sin? I'll give you three reasons. One, sometimes you sin, you just want to do it. <laughs> Nobody made you do it. You want to do it. You're guilty. But sometimes you wouldn't have done that stupid thing if you didn't have 15 people with you. Let's go and do it. In other words, society leads you down the road to sin. Sometimes you sin because of the way the culture is shaped. And sometimes you sin because of the spiritual forces and powers that we see in the world. One of the things that I notice is that um, when you have something like a, a school shooting, we kind of recognize that like evil becomes more evident for us to see. And sometimes there, there is an act so wicked that it transcends the normal boundaries we might describe as human sinfulness. And it feels almost demonic. You hear this language come up when, when you see the news coverage. This is a demonic act. So like, we can understand the possibility of real structural sin that is rooted in some kind of spiritual darkness. So this baptismal um, liturgy is important because it says sin arises from three places. We do it individually, 
Society does it to us. It leads us down a certain road. And third, sometimes it's spiritual. Two of those three, well, actually all three of them in different ways, gives us an, a, the ability to see how structural sin might come into play. But it's precisely here, I want to close with this, that, that charity is needed. What I tried to argue is that you can't really take the New Testament or the Old Testament seriously without seeing that God is a God of justice. And this justice is particularly seen in the concern for the needy and the oppressed. And I've then tried to argue that you can't take sin seriously and believe that sin can be limited to personal animus. It's not even what the Bible says. It's not even what the Bible says about sin. The Bible assumes and argues that society is consent against individuals. So if we see something like systemic racism, it is nothing other than a manifestation of societal sin in the category of race. And it's what we should actually imagine, not necessarily racism, we should expect structural sins to exist in society. And, and sometimes people will say, like, like why, why would you, if it's this eradicatable part of society, why fight it? And I say a couple of things. One is society, our culture, makes marriage hard. A lot of things about makes singleness hard. Makes raising children hard. Makes being wise stewards of your money difficult. And we feel like that tendency to destroy those beautiful things that we love are going to be a part of us. And part of our Christian discipleship is to say, I may never get my marriage perfect. I may never like become the perfect parent, but I never stop striving to become that which God calls me to be. And if we can say we cannot reach perfection, we'll battle against our tendency to sin until the day that we die. We can say that yes, racism might persist, but we as Christians have to be willing to commit ourselves to see it as a sin that it is and battle it until the Lord's return. Thank you. I, I, have, I have three minutes, so I guess that means I can do like one question. Does anyone have a burning question? None. Okay. Well, you can use your three minutes to click on the QR code. <laughs> so if you have, I didn't realize this. This is like the new technology. You can just like get it from your, isn't that impressive? <laughs> <laughs>